the reading from the first book of Kings. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask something of me and I will give it to you. Solomon answered, O Lord, my God, you have made me your servant, king to succeed my father, David. But I am a mere youth, not knowing at all how to act. I serve you in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a people so vast that it cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding heart to judge your people and to distinguish right from wrong. For who is able to govern this vast people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon made this request. So God said to him, because you have asked for this, not for a long life for yourself, nor for riches, nor for the life of your enemies, but for understanding so that you may know what is right. I do as you requested. I give you a heart so wise and understanding that there has never been anyone like you up to now. And after you, there will be no one to equal you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our song response is Psalm 119, Lord, I love your commands. It's found on page 191. is to keep your words the law of your mouth is to me more precious than thousands of gold and silver pieces Lord I love your commands let your kindness comfort me according to your promise to your servants let your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Lord, I love your commands. For I love your commands more than gold, however fine. For in your precepts I go forward, every false way I hate. Lord, I love your commands. Wonderful are your decrees, therefore I observe them. The revelation of your words sheds light, giving understanding to the simple. Lord, I love your commands. A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, we know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. 
and those he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, which a person finds and hides again, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, which collects fish of every kind. When it is full, they haul it ashore and sit down to put what is good into buckets and what is bad they throw away. Thus it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Do you understand all these things? They answered, yes. And he replied, Then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings from his storeroom both the new and the old. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so our gospel today opens with a, a couple of parables that teach us a couple of things about the kingdom of God. Oh, just as a little aside, you notice that Matthew doesn't call it the kingdom of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. Being a Jew and writing to a Jewish audience in which it was considered disrespectful to use the name of God, he then used, calls it the kingdom of heaven. When you read in St. Luke, who's writing to a Greek audience, they don't have any qualms about using the name of God, you'll see that it's called the kingdom of God. So if you ever wonder what the difference is between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, well, they're one and the same. It just depends upon the author and who he's writing to. But in, this, in these parables, we see this treasure that's hidden in a field and someone finds it and does probably what you or I would do. Quick, hide it again. Go, sell everything I have and buy the field so that the treasure will be mine. And then also a merchant looking for a pearl, a fine pearl, and he finds this pearl of great price, and he sells everything he has to buy this pearl. An interesting aside, does anybody know what the most valuable pearl in the world is worth today? That's not something we think about often, is it? Actually, it was just discovered about 10 years ago it is a giant pearl. It's over two feet across, over two feet wide, 
and it's valued at $100 million. That's truly a pearl of great price. But what we learn from these particular parables is this, that the kingdom of God is so wonderful. It's so valuable. It is worth absolutely everything you are and everything you have to gain the kingdom of God. And the other thing we learn is this, the kingdom of God costs us everything we have and everything we are. Because the only way we can come to God is empty-handed. He's not interested in our bank accounts. He's not interested in how, what kind of car we drive. He only wants us completely and totally to give ourselves fully to him, to be willing to sacrifice everything we have and everything we are for the joy of knowing Christ. There are no children here today, so you missed the children's sermon, but I will tell you something that I went over with the children at a previous mass, and that is how a pearl is made. And I think many of us know the story of how pearls are made. And we know, obviously, they come from mollusks like oysters or clams. And the way they start is something irritating gets inside of um, an oyster or a clam, and it begins to irritate the little sea creature. Kind of like when you have a, a stone in your shoe or you get a sticker burr in your sock and it just is irritating. And so you wanna take care of that. And well, clams don't have hands that they can reach in and grab in and, and pull it out. So what they do is they form this protective enclosure around this little piece of sand or little piece of shell or whatever it is that's causing this irritation. And they cover it with a shell of this the substance, it's calcium carbonate, actually, for all chemists out there. And this becomes this beautiful pearl. So it all begins with this irritation, something that's gone wrong, something that hurts. And yet it becomes something of beauty. St. Paul, in his writing that was the second reading today, says this. He says, all things work for the good of those who love God, those who are called to fulfill his purpose. Why did St. Paul say this? What can we find in the life of St. Paul that would cause him to say such a thing? Well, some of you know St. Paul. He was born in Tarsus, which was a Mediterranean seaport that gained in prominence uh, after Alexander the Great used it extensively and became quite a metropolis of, of, a, of a seaport there on the Mediterranean. And St. Paul was there, and he had uh, a Roman father and a Jewish mother. So he grew up essentially in two different worlds. Now, his Roman father, who was apparently quite wealthy and uh, may have been a soldier, or at least he had been a soldier. And so St. Paul was raised, uh, taught the military arts. He was raised to be able to be a soldier. He was, he was uh, raised to be an athlete. And we know this mostly from the way he quickly go, falls to illustrations or allusions 
both to military life and to uh, athletic competition. You read through his letters, you see a lot of, of these illustrations that he used. And knowing his Roman father had been a soldier, he was probably trained to be a soldier. His Jewish mother saw to it that he had the best education in the law that was available at that time. He studied under the teacher Gamaliel, who was a rabbi who himself had studied under the rabbi Hillel, who is considered to be the most important rabbi in all of history. Hillel began the foundation of the understanding of the law from which we now have rabbinic Judaism. He is really that, that key figure. And Gamaliel was his, his key pupil, and then his, the Gamaliel's lead pupil was Paul. And Paul had, had learned so much from Gamaliel, he becomes an adjunct to the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, the Supreme Court of all the Jewish nation. So if we were to meet someone who is kind of like St. Paul today, he, we might meet him and say, so tell me about yourself. And he would answer something like, well, I went to West Point, and after my military career, I went to Harvard Law School and became a federal judge, and now I'm an advisor to the Supreme Court. That's something about the amount of influence that St. Paul had in his day. He was a very important man. And as an adjunct to the Sanhedrin, once they brought a, uh, someone to, to before the Sanhedrin who is accused of, uh, of being unkind to the Jewish law, of saying something unkind to the Jewish law. And so he was a man who believed in Christ as the Messiah. His name was Stephen. And the Sanhedrin was so incensed by him that they decided to put him to death right then and there and St. Paul was the one who oversaw his death as the witness to sign he was executed by the Sanhedrin today. Now remember, he studied both the law and warfare. He's a military officer as well. And so the Sanhedrin quickly saw in him someone that they could use to stamp out this sect of Christians, this sect who believed Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah. And so they entrust to St. Paul his own private army. He's got his own group of soldiers that he can use to go from city to city to try to persecute, to imprison, torture, to put an end to this sect of Christians, those who want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's in the carrying out of those duties that he's traveling to a city in Syria called Damascus, and there, on the road, he meets Jesus. Now, one of the things we see about Jesus in his appearances after the resurrection, and you see this in St. John's book of Revelation, he is clothed in light. In fact, we saw that in the transfiguration, didn't we, where Jesus is clothed in light. And the light is, shines so brightly that Paul is struck blind. He's blind for three days until one of the Christians in Damascus prays for him that he would be healed. And having met Jesus, he quickly abandoned his way of life. He wanted to discover what it was, what the purpose God had for him. What is the purpose that Jesus appeared to him? What is his purpose for God? And so he went 
and lived for three years in Arabia just studying the law. He became the first Christian hermit. And so he lives by himself in Arabia studying the Torah, studying the law, learning, praying, allowing the Holy Spirit to inspire him to come to an understanding of what it is God has for him. And God's purpose for St. Paul became very clear to him. His purpose was to take the love of Jesus to the most despised people in the world. Us. The Gentiles, those who had not been raised in accordance with the righteousness of the law of Moses, those who had given themselves to paganism and to all manner of lifestyles that were disagreed upon by the law of Moses and by the righteous Jews of the day. His job was going to be to take them the love of Jesus. So after three years in Arabia, Barnabas, another character in the New Testament, they go get, he goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. And there he's a part of the church and the church decides it is time for Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel of Jesus, to take the love of Jesus to the Gentile world. And so Paul, Barnabas brings Paul to Jerusalem, and there he is ordained by Peter and James. They lay hands upon him to ordain him to this ministry. And so Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus, many, many of these people we hear in the New Testament, they begin this missionary journey, or three missionary journeys in all, and they begin taking the gospel away from the nation of Israel and out into the Greek and Roman world. And the way it usually worked was something like this. He'd always go to the synagogues first. He was a Jew. He was a rabbi. He was, he was well known. And so he would go there and they would let him in. They'd say, come, speak, you know, share with us. What do you have to say to us? And he would begin teaching them that Jesus was the Messiah. And he would bring to them the scriptures so that they could understand and know Jesus is the Messiah. And some would say, That's, you know, would, would accept that, and, but most did not. Most sent him away. And when they sent him away, threw him out of the synagogue, he would always say, now I will go to the Greeks. And that really upset them. And so he'd go into the marketplace and he'd begin preaching to the Greeks and to the Romans that God is one and that God loves them. And if they will come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, who was crucified and rose from the dead and be baptized to become a part of the church, then they would be welcomed into the family of God. And there were some who, who accepted, but most did not. And that went on for a while. He would usually build a small church of 20 or 30 people. And then the ones from Jerusalem would come. Now, these people who would come following Paul from Jerusalem to cause him trouble, to falsely accuse him and to ridicule him, they were Christians. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they believed that it, the law of Moses came first. And you cannot love, you cannot serve Jesus unless you first serve the law of Moses. We heard Jesus say about the, the man who brings out of his storeroom both new and old, well, they just wanted the old stuff. It's always been done this way. And the early church in Jerusalem were all Jews, and they obeyed the law of Moses, but they believed in Christ as the Messiah. Yet, as the church spread around the world, there was an understanding that Gentiles like us, we didn't have to follow the law of Moses. We just needed to come to Christ by faith 
and be united to his church through baptism. So these would come from Jerusalem and they would ridicule Paul and they would rise up, they, they'd stir up trouble against Paul. And then the magistrates would get involved because there's trouble in the city. Someone is disturbing the peace. And Paul would usually be punished quite severely for having brought the gospel of Jesus into this town. He was imprisoned several times. He was beaten. Twice he was beaten to the point where he, they left him for dead. Once he was thrown into the, the arena to fight the lions. You know, you've seen the, um, you see the movies where the Christians are fed to the lions. Well, this happens to St. Paul, although we don't know whether or not they're lions. He just says there were wild beasts, whether they were lions or bears or whatever he was tossed out into the arena with. But remember, he'd been trained as a soldier. He was an athlete, and he successfully fought off the wild beasts that had been set before him. And you've seen this in the movies, too, where, where those who fight well, you know, they, they get the thumbs up. Okay, let him live. He fought well. And those that don't fight well, well, they're eaten up by then anyway. So Paul successfully fended off these, these wild beasts. He began his missionary journeys as a wealthy man, having family wealth and having been wealthy as, because of his, his position there among the Jews and in the Sanhedrin. And he seems to have spent every cent he had on this journey, on this purpose to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. After he ran out of money, he began to earn a living by being a leather worker. He was a leather craftsman. And most translations will translate that tent maker, but really what that means is he was a leather craftsman. Tents were made out of leather that day, so he may have made his share of tents in the days before treatments of cloth to make them waterproof. If you want a tent that keeps the rain off, you better make it out of leather. And so he was a leather craftsman. And he earned his living that way, making his own living so he could preach the gospel further. He finally went back to Jerusalem for a visit. And he was so hated. He was the one that they planned to use to, to stamp out Christianity. And now he's spreading it all over the world. He was so hated that a group of men took a vow that they would not eat or drink until they had killed him. And Paul is warned about this plot by a nephew, actually. And so the only way he can protect himself, guard his life against those who seek it, is to become a prisoner of Rome. And as a prisoner, be protected by the might of Rome. And so he did. He spent the rest of his life as a prisoner of Rome, eventually living in Rome for a while as a prisoner and then beheaded by Nero when Nero became emperor and chose to persecute the Christians in that way. And at some point in the midst of all of this turmoil of his life, Paul makes this statement. All things work for the good of those who love God, for those who are called to fulfill his purpose. We look at the life of St. Paul and we say, I wouldn't actually call that much good in this life. 
sounded to me like a lot of bad things happened to you, Paul. A lot of times people come to me and they ask me, how come bad things happen to good people? And I say, bad things happen to everybody. It's life. Everybody's got their share of good, their share of bad. Bad things happen to everybody. But to those who love God and live their lives to fulfill God's purpose in their lives, we have this promise that everything will work for their good. And I'm sure St. Paul wondered what this good was going to be. He didn't see it. I, don't, I think he died without seeing what the good was that God had planned to bring out of the massive troubles and living his life as now a prisoner in Rome. But as a prisoner, he had founded, before he became a prisoner, he had founded many churches. He had raised up those to follow after him, T Timothy and Titus and, and others. He had ministered to these people and he wanted to be able to go see them again and to give them counsel and to, and to train them and, and help them further in their, in their walk with Christ. And unable to go do that, he wrote letters. These letters became for us the New Testament. We are benefits of the good that came from Paul's willingness to suffer hardship and trouble and to remain faithful even to the point of say, yeah, some bad things have happened to me, but I know all things work for the good of those who love God, to those who are called to fulfill his purpose. And regardless of how many times he was beaten or left for dead or people pledged to kill him, he remained faithful to that, that faith. Everything is going to work for my good. I just don't see it yet, but it will come. In our lives, there's certainly a great deal of turmoil right now, isn't there? Some have suffered loss of jobs, disruptions in income. There's COVID, there are riots. There's all kinds of doubts and questions. What do we do? How are we going to get through this? But in the simple faith that all things work for the good of those who love God, all things work for the good of those who are called to fulfill his purpose in their lives. We go, to the, we go back to Stephen, the deacon, the first Christian martyr, who as he was being killed, he said this prayer, Lord, do not hold this, this sin to their charge. Don't hold this sin against them. And that prayer was answered in the life of the man who stood as witness to his death. In the martyrdom of Stephen, the good came out of that by one man who was converted and carried the gospel into the Gentile world. In Paul's life, who suffered so many hardships, the good came in his writings that give us faith and hope and comfort in our lives. We don't always see it. And I'm not saying everything that happens to us is good. A lot, plenty bad happens to us. We know that. But God works it all 
for our good and the good of all who are called to fulfill his purpose in their lives.